This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Hey, GapFest fans. I have a special announcement for you today. This year marks the 25th anniversary of Slate. I was there at the launch. I was there at the beginning 25 years ago. So I am so glad that we're going to be able to honor it this year. And we're going to honor it by offering for a limited time only our annual Slate Plus membership at $25 off. As a member, you'll get no ads on any of our podcasts, unlimited reading on the Slate site, and member-exclusive episodes and segments from our show and from other shows like Slow Burn and Amicus. For the past quarter century, Slate has been covering all the major news events, from elections to social issues to historic court decisions. I cannot tell you what it was like back in the day to cover the Clinton impeachment on slate or the work we did around 9-11 or the work we did around the great recession it's been a place where we've covered the most important events in the most interesting and compelling ways we started out doing that in print only or digital print only and nearly 20 years ago we began doing it in podcast form and we've done it with political podcasts and cultural podcasts and sports podcasts and business podcasts We hope we become part of your listening routine. And if we have, we're asking that you support our work by joining Slate Plus today. So sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash gabfestplus to keep us going for another 25 years. Again, we're giving you $25 off an annual membership through October 31st. So sign up now at slate.com slash gabfestplus. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for October 14th, 2021, the Death of Democracy edition. I am David Plotz of CityCast. I'm here in Washington, D.C., back home after a revivifying vacation in California. You're so great, California. What a state. A1. I am joined, of course, by my dear friends and co-hosts, Emily Bazelon, of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School from New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hey, David. We're so glad you're back. I am so glad you're back because I had to host last week, which is a lot of work. And did an excellent job hosting, if I may say so. John Dickerson may say so. John Dickerson of CBS's Sunday Morning. Hello, John. How are you? Hello, David. Hello, Emily. Do you guys notice the flowers behind me? Tell us about your flowers. Farmer's Market flowers behind me. They're still doing well after almost a week. And after me knocking them over on the floor and spilling the water everywhere. Was that 
Was that something that happened last week? You guys talked about your flowers? (laughs) No, I'm just noticing on this Zoom call that I have flowers growing out of my left shoulder. And for those who are listening to this podcast as opposed to watching it, which is really only a club of like five people, um, there are um, sunflowers over my left shoulder. They're very lovely. We give you a 9.9 on Room Raider. Uh, The sunflowers are the the jolliest thing that's going to happen on this podcast this week. We will talk about whether the Democratic Party can save itself, and we're going to dig into the existential fight, maybe existential fight, that's gripping the party about whether it has been hijacked by white progressives who are leading it to disaster. Then, from bad to worse, we will dive into the even more existential question for American life. Do Trump and the Trump takeover of the Republican Party and the consequent warping of election systems foreshadow the death of democracy, the death of American democracy? Uh, maybe it does. Then we will be joined by Andrea Elliott, whose new book, Invisible Child, is an incredible portrait of poverty as seen through the life of a single girl. Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. And a reminder, we're still collecting conundrums. You've sent us so many good ones, but keep them coming at slate.com slash conundrum. We are girding up for our conundrum show at the end of the year. And I would like to know whether you would rather be a dragon or have a dragon. So please send us your conundrums at slate.com slash conundrum. A few months ago, the Democratic strategist and numbers junkie David Shore joined us on the GabFest. Shore is again all over the news this week because of an Ezra Klein piece in the Times diving into the debate over Shoreism, which is what I'm calling it, or popularism, another term. And it's a debate that Shore has kind of ignited within the party or that Shore is the touchstone of this debate. And to lay it out briefly, Shore has said, as he said on the GabFest, that the Democratic Party is headed for a generational catastrophe because the party, he says, has stopped talking about things that are popular and instead is talking about things that are not popular too much. And one of the reasons for this, Shore says, is that white progressives who are far more liberal than most of the country and far more liberal than most Democratic voters are guiding the, the rhetoric of the party. And as a result, the Democrats are losing the chance to reach working class voters, mostly but not all white working class voters, by talking about the wrong issues. The critics of Shore, which we will get into, say that actually it's not that the Democrats are talking about these issues, such as defunding the police. It's that conservatives are framing the issue in such a way that it it tars the Democrats with the issue. And also that it's really important to energize voters and that one of the things that progressives do is energize voters about liberal voters about issues they really care about. And that makes them more likely to participate in politics rather than talking about more boring middle of the road issues. So it's a lot of it's a lot of stuff going on, John. But I would like you to start by asking, like, what does this why does this shore debate coming up now? In part, because it always comes up um, in elections. You know, there's there's been a long time debate over you know, swing voters versus base voters. And then that debate gets confused when you get when the difference is between a presidential election year and a non-presidential election year, because the shape of the electorate changes. And where you're having the debate depends on where you come down on this. But the um, and it's been a long time debate, but it's just social media has exacerbated it. And as Ezra writes about and assure uh, uh talks about a lot is that there has been a movement in the Democratic coalition to make college-educated voters a larger portion of the Democratic coalition, and that plus the makeup of the Senate, which tends to advantage rural states, has exacerbated this split within uh, or this this tension within the party, uh, and that's why 
this is of the moment now, even more so than it would normally be. Isn't it also a kind of post-Obama or hearkening back to Obama set of questions? Because I think part of Shore's point is that there are a number of exciting to liberals pieces of the platform that Democrats can run on. You know, the Build Back Better plan is part of it, voting rights, there are all these different things. And Yet, I think in Shore's view, there are also aspects of the way that Democrats talk, or actually more honestly, activists talk about uh, race and immigration that can be alienating to working class voters. And I actually think part of Shore's point is to look at the fact that Democrats are slightly losing share among Latino and black working class voters as well as white voters. And so that's the part of it that feels like a sort of fresh take on that older dynamic. And I should say, as I think we did when Shore was on the show, that um, my son Simon is working for him. So I hear a lot about this debate from him. I mean, do you guys think, do you, John, do you think that Democrats are not talking about popular things? No. Well, the question is, the definition of popular is what gets muddled. I mean, even what Emily, what Emily just said has strands in it that you have to pull apart. I mean, the big the big framing challenge here is the Democrats are trying to have a debate about polling and political science in the middle of already a hot contested election situation. It's like you're playing football and, you know, the team is trying to figure out, do we do a running play or a passing play? But the ball was snapped like three seconds ago, and a 380-pound linebacker is running right at your quarterback. And that's too big. That's too big. That linebacker's too big, man. Okay, that but he's very fast. Two, he's like 280. 280 Whatever. Max. And he's, he's really good at trying to decide what the play should be, right? No. Like that's part of the problem. No, well, no, no. no. The debate is the problem among the people trying to decide whether to do a running play or a passing play, because there's plenty of evidence for both. But the problem is that the fans are cheering really loudly which is to say you have social media, fundraising, which is more important now because it costs a lot more money to run a campaign than it used to. And the way you raise money is by talking about national issues, which sometimes may or may not be useful from an elect electoral standpoint. So the money you need to raise might work across purposes from the things you need to talk about to actually get voters. Then there's cable news, which accentuates all of these sort of ideological issues, which might not be that useful for trying to get voters. So all of that noise is taking place while you're trying to have this careful debate. And back to your point about popular issues, David, an issue can be popular, but who is it popular with? And then what does it mean to be popular? Popular with the base voters or the kind of more middle of the road voters? And what does the shape of the electorate look like in the places where you actually have to compete? And then secondly, an idea can be popular, but is it motivating? Wait, can I stop, though? I don't, I mean, I feel like we have polling. Like, I mean, I feel like we're having this conversation at 20,000 feet when it could be a little more concrete. I mean, if you believe in the polling results that Shore is producing, his argument is to produce a winning coalition, to have any chance of even just having the Senate remain 50-50, the Democrats have to think about building a coalition that has more working class people of all races in it. And that some of the messaging from activists, some of what activists are demanding is alienating to a lot of those voters. So there have been a bunch of critiques coming back at him. One is, we don't believe your polls. Another one is, politics should be the art of the possible, and we're trying to make change, and we're not going to just stick with the stuff that's popular because we want to 
transform America. And another really interesting critique, um, which Jamel Bowie made, was like, okay, I believe you. I also see this racism in America and how some of this messaging can be alienating. But I think that if you're really going to address that, you're going to have to go back to like the triangular posture of Bill Clinton. You can't just make little changes around the edges. You can't just like stop saying Latinx to live. give one example, since that term most Latinos don't really want to use. You have to really like change what you're doing and be more conservative and is sure really up for that. And that's of interest to me in, in this, as well as this question of can you talk about race and class and the way in which, you know, as Heather McGee, who we had on the show, talks about this zero-sum game. Like, can you get people to see that the reason the 1% has so much more than everyone else is that they're trying to distract you by thinking that, like, it's the fault of the people who don't share your race, when in fact, that is a big con. Yeah, I mean, I think that the thing that's so unsettling about shoreism taken to its logical extreme is that it implies that Democrats should never talk about race or immigration at all when these are issues that are hugely important. And that's not something that a lot of people are willing to countenance given the nature and structure of American society. No, I don't think that's really what Shore's arguing, but I don't think he's been super clear about what the differences are. And some of the examples that not necessarily him, but other people like Matt Iglesias have given suggests that any kind of discussion of racial justice or like reparations framing as opposed to benefits that are, you know, for everyone across race or are for, you know, people of certain income is bad. And that is something that, you know, in the progressive movement, there's a lot of talk of racial justice for its own sake right now. But the reason we have, the reason it's important to have this debate at some level at 20,000 feet is that once you get into the numbers, there are competing numbers. I mean, as you said, people doubt Shore's numbers. Then other people say, no, we have numbers that show different outcomes. For example, Shore argues that the defund the police message hurt with Latino voters. There's a whole bunch of polling that says no Latino voters voted for Donald Trump for a whole host of issues and that it's not that clear. So you have a debate about whether there are the numbers, then there's a debate over the numbers themselves, and then there's the big debate over whether the solution is possible, whether you can in fact change your message in a way that uh, is narrow casted sufficiently to hit these different pockets, or whether the news environment, the success of Republicans in framing Democrats and the general disorganization that exists in political parties make it impossible to talk about issues so carefully. I mean, I have a totally different take that I, I want to hear your take. I, I actually have a temporal take on a lot of this. I, I don't feel myself sophisticated enough to understand the, the polling in a deep way. I actually think that we are at the wrong moment in the political cycle to make too many judgments about what Democrats do and don't think. And that's because I think the last years of the Trump presidency or the last five years were exhausting and galvanizing for Democrats and people on the left. They spent a huge amount of energy getting involved and being active. And that actually what's happened, a combination of the pandemic, a combination of of perhaps not very effective legislative action by Democrats in the House, and mostly just exhaustion, has Democrats tuned out and not engaged and wanting a break from it all in the context of a Republic, extremely active, negatively partisan conservative movement that is galvanized by the presence of Joe Biden and galvanized by the legislative action that's that's happening. And so we have this kind of asymmetry, which is there's an extremely active conservative movement that is creating all sort of culture war fights. And then a Democratic 
party that has not framed its issues particularly well, but not because it's not doing a good job framing the issues. It's just that it has an electorate that doesn't want to talk about it or doesn't care about it and isn't, is, is exhausted with the subject for now, which will re- but that party will, you know, those folks will re-engage as an election gets closer. Well, there's a reason that the out party usually does well in the first election after uh, a presidency, because this is a phenomenon that happens again and again. The out party is outraged by what the party in power is doing, and they are more energized by that than the in party is energized by what the party is actually able to do. And particularly as as structurally locked up as our politics are, there's very little an in party can do. And so it's almost inevitable that the voters who are so enthusiastic to get the in party in are disappointed by what can actually happen in the world of politics as it exists. But your part, your point about Donald Trump as the force that occluded all of these internal questions within the party is, you know, that may happen in previous elections, but nothing galvanized a party like Donald Trump did. And we know from the last several elections that negative partisanship is extremely powerful. It's more often that people vote against something than for something. And it's just Democrats, in addition to the things you were saying, they're on the wrong side of the negative partisanship. Uh, And we see that even in the Virginia race now and just in general, that uh, Republicans are more energized to be negative than 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 Democrats are, even with Donald Trump in the wings. I feel like we're losing sight or maybe we don't believe in the existential threat that Shore's polling suggests. And I don't think this part is just his polling. Right. I mean, particularly with regard to the Senate, unless the Democrats do things like add Senate seats and in the House address gerrymandering, you know, really strongly protect voting rights, there are these structural and competitive advantages that Republicans have. And so one way to think about this debate is it's born of desperation. It's okay, maybe in a different universe where these two parties were on an even playing field, you could talk about the base and imagine the base being enough to win elections, to win the Senate. But that's not the case, given the fact that there's not a level playing field. And so that's part of the sort of urgency of do the popular stuff. It's like you don't have a choice because this other stuff is going to sink you. And then the Democrats could never get the Senate back like for many years. And then other people think that's vastly exaggerated. But the people who argue against Shore aren't saying that the existential threat doesn't exist. They're saying that his solution to beating back the existential threat is the wrong one, and exactly the wrong one, is going to cause the Democratic Party to be in worse shape than uh, than if they follow their supportive ideas. It's not a. It's not that they both diagnose the problem the same way. It's just their medicine is different. Well, I think some people are saying, I don't really care about that because these are my issues and I want there to be transformation. And whether or not that succeeds politically in the short or even the medium term, like this is what I think should happen and I'm going to fight for it. Right. And then there's this other sort of sense we were talking about before, which I continue to associate with Jamel, which is like, okay, I hear you about the racism. What are you really going to do about it? You know, it sounds benign. Just do the popular stuff. But what does that really mean? Shore argued in Iglesias' Slow Boring um, on the child tax credit, marrying his view of politics and the possible by saying basically they should go for a more means-tested child tax credit because you're going to lose the Senate and not get a chance 
to uh, re-up the child tax credit, which you'd have to if you took a more expensive one. You'd, you'd be able to get a more expensive child tax credit that wasn't as means tested, but you'd only be able to have it for four years. And then in four years, if it's a Republican-controlled Senate, you're never going to get it back. So assume that it's a Republican-controlled Senate. Do a more modest child tax credit that exists for a long time or doesn't sunset in four years. And that's the way he has tried to argue for a, um, a policy related to this polling. Yeah, good point. And just one other policy complexity here is that if you look at what Shore says is the most popular Democratic proposal, it's the negotiating drug prices, which Senator Sinema is against. So it's not just Sinema and Manchin blocking the kind of most woke part of the left, what they want, but it's those two senators together block both what the very liberal want and the ones that are the most popular among voters in the middle. If you become a member of Slate Plus, you will support the great journalism Slate is doing. You'll get bonus segments on the GabFest, other Slate podcasts. You'll get no ads on any Slate podcast. It's a great deal. And this week, you will get a bonus segment. We were going to talk about if we could waste our life on some wonderful, leisureous activity, what would it be? How would we squander our life most gloriously? Slate.com slash GabFest plus. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. John, is democracy in America in mortal peril? Yes. I mean, obviously, democracy is always with one election away from peril. I'm quoting Ronald Reagan there, which is kind of funny because the peril at the moment comes from the structure within the Republican Party. Um, and there are plenty of reasons that a democracy is in peril that has nothing to do with either of the two parties, but has to do with the set of incentives created by the political structure and the media structure um, that have, we mentioned a little bit in the in the um, conversation about Democrats. So I'll leave that aside for the moment. But at the but what's happening at this very moment is you have two things. One is you have Republican officials at local levels, not just making it harder for certain kinds of people to vote, but also putting themselves in charge of the election certification process, putting partisans in charge of the election certification process when it is basically been the tradition and the longstanding best practice to have people who are nonpartisan as as much as is possible, involved in the certification process. So that's one challenge. And the other challenge is that Donald Trump has created an unreality market in his own party, where it is now the price of admission to success in the party if you claim things that are not so. And that's particularly dangerous, not because, not only because it's wrong, uh, but secondly, because it's training an entire group of people to not believe in the blue sky above them, but to claim that the sky is purple. And that's super dangerous. And it's also not a very effective way to govern because you might get hit with a glo with a global pandemic and you can't just claim it doesn't exist or that it's like the flu because lots and lots of people die. So it's training people not just in bad practice, but in practice that's totally antithetical to the process of governing. If Trump died, Emily, how much of the Trumpist energy and this delusion and the this emperor's new clothes thing that we all have to live with would wane for American life. Does that portion of what John's talking about, not the, I think John's right to label this administrative changes as 
one separate element. But does the delusional part vanish if it doesn't have someone with that much wicked charisma to maintain it? I think it would wane for a time, but when you look at figures like Tucker Carlson in particular and, you know, Sean Hannity, the way Fox News operates, some of what governor like Ron DeSantis has been doing and saying in Florida, certainly there are Republican officials in Texas, including the governor there, who have gone down this lane. I think that it has spread and shown to have a lot of power. It's, you know, turning out voters. It's getting people excited um, to hark back to our previous conversation. And so, no, I think it's there to stay. John, you passed around this quote from John Stewart. I'm a person who's loath to quote John Stewart, but here I am. Uh, and he's saying that what Republicans learned from what happened after the 2020 election was that there are specific pivot points within the American electoral system. And those pivot points are generally administration of elections run by partisans, but not ideologues. And there's this sets up the stage for an administrative coup. Emily, how worried are you about this thing that John talked about at the beginning, which is the, the taking of a nonpartisan, uh, relatively bureaucratic, relatively kind of expert-run election administration and turning it into something that is highly partisan? I'm pretty worried because we've been moving in the direction of fewer guardrails, not more. So, you know, we've talked a lot on this show about all the ways in which the uh, the outcome of the election, the voting and the after people voted part, hung by a thread. Now, because Biden won, you know, five or six swing states and it didn't all come down to Georgia or Arizona, there were enough enough protections in place for things to hold together. But in each of those places, it came too close, I would argue, including a state like Wisconsin that has a Democratic governor. And I mentioned that just because that should provide some bipartisan ballast. And so and the same for Michigan. And so when you look at the temptation to move from partisanship to outright rejecting legitimate election results. It was a real danger. And the notion that we can kind of hand wave it and not worry about it too much, even as Republicans pass measures in states to make it easier for partisanship to take this really ugly, scary cast, it just seems like misguided to me. It doesn't have to be like huge percentage chance that it's actually going to happen for us to do our utmost to prevent it because it is such a dire consequence. And so I'm on the side of let's think really hard about how to make damn sure this doesn't happen right now. Yeah, there are those who looked at January 6th and said America dodged a bullet. And there are those who look at it and say, we need to aim better. Yeah, these, exactly. uh, these efforts are... Um, dangerous in in that regard and 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 going back to what i was saying there are two things that have happened recently that to me represent this kind of tutorial in how to think in crazy ways that have nothing to do with donald trump they do have to do with donald trump in the sense that the people who are thinking in crazy ways are doing so because he has now publicly said that republicans won't turn out to vote unless republican candidates talk about uh, how the 2020 election was stolen two things steve scalise congressman from louisiana was on fox news with um with chris wallace fox news sunday chris wallace asked him three times if the election was stolen he refused to answer he danced all over the place and then to prove 
that he wasn't just dissembling, but that he was actually choosing to support the idea that it was stolen. He, in part of one of his dodging answers, he he raised a, a non sequitur and said, that's a lie, which was an example of the answer he should have given when Chris Wallace asked him if the election had been stolen from Donald Trump, but he didn't give that. But what he did was he created a permission structure for anybody who was listening to believe that that's, that in fact, the election was stolen from Joe Biden. Now, it's one thing for Donald Trump to say this. It's another thing for everybody else to come up with other creative ways in which to say the thing that Donald Trump is is saying. The second thing is Chuck Grassley, who's the ranking member of the Judiciary Committee, said about Donald Trump he after uh, January 6th, he said he belittled and harassed elected officials across the country to get his way. He encouraged his own loyal Vice President Mike Pence to take extraordinary and unconstitutional actions during the Electoral College count. Okay, that was in the early days after January 6th. Subsequent to that, now, Chuck Grassley, who's running to be reelected in Iowa, showed up on the stage with the person about whom he said that in January 6th. In other words, bygones. Secondly, the, the minority on the Judiciary Committee issued a report, as the majority did, about their interviews with the Department of Justice officials about what President Trump tried to do to get the election overthrown and how he tried to use the Justice Department to do so. And it was a night and day description. And it wasn't based on just hearsay. It was based on the testimony of officials. And the majority described a meeting on January 3rd in which basically the entire Justice Department leadership plus the president's own White House lawyer said they would quit and resign if he followed the course of action that he was going to follow. That's how the majority put it. The minority wrote about the same event and basically said, well, the president considered this and then decided not to leaving out the fact that he decided not to because the entire lawyer crew was going to resign. When you leave out something like that, it means that a set of people think it's in their best interest to improve their career by basically eliding incredibly important information. It's a pattern of thinking that is now more widespread and that will allow more craziness to happen. When I think about this, obviously these kind of particular structural changes that are taking place, the particular uh, cretinous behavior by politicians that's taking place matters. But I almost go back to an earlier stage, which is that when you are in a negotiation, when you're in partnership with any other person, you you tend not to cheat if you think you're going to get caught or you think... uh, you, you, mostly, mostly, we act when we're we're dealing with other human beings relatively honestly. We set up rules. We play by those rules. If we lose, we accept the result. But when you're in a partnership or you're in a in a competition with somebody, uh, where you see the other person as an other, where you don't see them as somebody like you, you're willing to do whatever it takes to defeat them. And I think one of the things that is really gone rotten in America is that people fundamentally see each other as others. And this is the, that partisanship has become one of the most important divides in American life and that it's toxic and that you don't just see the person on the, who with the different political views as somebody who is also seeking the best for America and just has a different point of view about it. You see someone who is, who actively seeks to undo or undermine or damage your society and to hurt you. And therefore, any action you take to to disable that person, to reduce their power, to cheat them is justified. And that's where I think we are. And that's what allows this kind of, of license to cheat and license to distort and license to steal to take root. And I don't like 
the, the, the solution for that is in the human heart. It's in connections with other people. It's in spending time with people who are different from you. It's in having to work with people who are different from you. And it has to take place over millions and millions and millions of millions of people and millions of small interactions. And unfortunately, because we live separately and we're educated separately and we worship separately, these interactions don't take place. It's, it's, we're fucked. We're fucked without those human connections. That's not a question. That was just a comment. Yeah, really, we should end on that exclamation point, but I'm going to drag us into the weeds of the next stage of the story, or at least part of it is going to be about the subpoenas that Democrats in Congress are issuing to former Trump officials as they try to really get to the bottom of the events leading up to January 6th and also learn even more about what John was describing in terms of what was going on at the Justice Department and in other in states like Georgia to try to overturn the election results. So at least one of the people subpoenaed, Stephen Bannon, has said that he's not going to respond. And I would expect some of the other former Trump officials to take the same line. And then we're going to have some kind of showdown. Congress has not for low, I think, a century actually tried to have criminal contempt sanctions on anyone who's refused a subpoena. This is the idea of uh, using the Justice Department to go to court and say Congress has subpoena power. So if you're not going to respond to the subpoena, you have to go to jail. A criminal contempt sanction is, a, you know, not like normal, but it is a weapon that prosecutors use in criminal cases. And we just haven't had the subpoena power that Congress can exert used in this way for a very long time. It's sort of been taken off the table. And it's going to be really interesting to see if Merrick Garland, the attorney general, goes along with this, what happens in court. There's a really never answered set of questions about what happens when there's a true showdown between the branches. And, you know, often these cases kind of dribble out over time. That happened um, to subpoenas of former Obama officials and former officials of George W. Bush. But this one is like a live wire. It's not about a small thing that everyone can just sort of forget about. And so, you know, Congress asserting itself um, vis-a-vis the executive branch and really the sort of former executive branch is something that it's going to be hard for the courts to duck, although the courts do not usually like being dragged into these showdowns between the other two elected branches. But in what sense is Steve Bannon an electoral what is he an executive branch official? He wasn't an executive branch official. Right. He was at that point like a Trump advisor outside of the White House. But but Trump is claiming executive privilege as the president for his communications with Bannon. And so that's why there's a sort of executive privilege um, presidential claim here, ex-presidential claim. Well, it isn't then Bannon shows up and says, I can't I'm not going to answer because of executive privilege. Well, That's what he's what, saying now is I'm not responding at all because of executive privilege. You have to work this out with President Trump, former President Trump and his people. Only if they authorize me to respond, will I respond. And so then this becomes the new battleground for the crazy thinking to employ itself, which keeps everybody ginned up, excites them for 2022, takes the conversation away from the underlying thing, which is that, as Mitch McConnell put it, the mob was fed lies. So it, it shifts the turf onto a new thing in which people can legalize it up and fuzz it up with a bunch of this and that to create a rallying area full of crazy thinking, which is not a part of the um, you know, using the American flag to attack police officers of the sixth. So it moves it into a new venue, one stage removed, but full of all the same energy, which helps those who are on the side of confusing things. Indeed. 
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. In 2013, the New York Times published one of the most heart-wrenching and morally troubling stories in its history, Invisible Child, Dasani's Homeless Life, with a five-part series by Andrea Elliott about Dasani Coates, an 11-year-old girl who had spent much of her life in city homeless shelters and all of her life in poverty. Andrea kept in touch with Dasani and her family after that story, and now eight years later comes a book, Invisible Child, Poverty, Survival, and Hope in an American City. It's the story of Dasani and her family, and in a larger sense, the story of the extraordinary failure of a wealthy society to take care of its vulnerable children. It's also just a brilliant, meticulously reported, and deeply humane piece of work. So we're thrilled that Andrea has joined us here. Welcome to the GabFest. Couldn't be happier. Thank you. So I want to begin kind of in a weird, with a weird question, I guess. The book is titled Invisible Child, but of course, after that New York Times series that you wrote came out, Dasani was a very visible child. She was the most famous child in New York for a time. And you make a great point in the afterword of your book, which is that even the fame and in some and money that came to her and attention have been no match for the poverty and bureaucratic failure that has guided her life. And so she finds herself now at age 21, I guess, 20, um, in a, in not in a great place. Why is that? Why why was even attention and the the hope that was generated by your story for this one child not enough for this one child? There are so many different ways to answer that question. I would start by just saying that the title comes from Dasani herself, and it's something that we've gone back to over time. You know, in all this period that I've followed the ups and downs of her life and the many twists and turns, most of which I couldn't have predicted, and it's part of the reason I stayed in her life for eight years, the invisibility, of course, it asserts a lens, right? Um, and you think, well, to invisible to whom? As Dasani put it to me more recently, you know, I'm visible, but society doesn't see me. You know, I met Dasani when, when she was living in a shelter in Fort Greene. By then, she'd spent her first decade of life in a borough that also had a huge a kind of sea change in that period, that first decade for Fort Greene. Uh, real estate prices in that period more than doubled. The portion of white residents shot up by 80%. And at the same time, an estimated three quarters of Black-owned businesses shut down. She could see that she was unseen in a sense. The money that came in, I will say, it wasn't significant, but it did wind up in a trust, which continues to this day to be very important to the family. It's called the Invisible Child Trust. This is eight children. They all want to go to college. And because the parents were dependent on food stamps, they elected to continue to try to survive the way they knew how, which was to keep their public benefits. And therefore, this money, it wasn't an agent of change that the attention she got was astonishing. Um, she was in in a way like the most celebrated child for a while, for a while. It felt like at least for 15 minutes for her, but it did quickly dissipate because the problems of her life were so overwhelming. 
This is sadly familiar to me from people I've written about. So one of the parts of your book is about Dasani going to boarding school, to a school called the Hershey School in Pennsylvania that has a lot of lower-income kids um, and is really trying to help them go on to college and have more middle-class lives, as far as I can tell. The trade-off, though, is that they have to be separated from their parents. And you report on the school's approach of really asking them to speak differently, to walk differently, become not like their parents in a lot of ways. And for Dasani, this is so wrenching, especially because her family falls apart while she's at boarding school. One of her younger brothers runs away or at least like leaves, and that brings all of the administrative scrutiny and apparatus and actual separation into foster care for her siblings, which is just totally excruciating. And I just wonder what you make of all of this. I mean, there are these really well-intentioned reasons why she goes to the school, and in the end, it's like too high a price for her to pay. That was, to me, one of the most um, heart-wrenching and also fascinating episodes of Dasani's life to witness the before, during, and after of the Hershey experiment. Hershey is trying to make it work for these kids. This is the school's view. So, and by the way, this is a philosophy that is repeated by all of the Black mentors in Dasani's life that were at Hershey and even some from Brooklyn. It was her Brooklyn principal who wanted her to go to Hershey to get away. They're saying there's different codes in different places. So if you can switch from speaking one way to another way, from dressing one way to another way, you're going to be more at peace. You're going to be more malleable. You're going to be able to, as you just put it, Emily, attain that middle-class version of success that mainstream American society has regarded as the way out. It's not so much how I feel about it as I turn to how Dasani feels about it, which really got me to question my own view of yes. what success is. Because if if we're defining it that way, the message is you do have to leave. You have to leave everything that was familiar to you. And she started to feel like she was losing an essential part of herself. She could feel the pain of the people she had left behind. And this is so hard because it's her very gifts, her talents that got her there, but that by the same token made her indispensable to her family of origin. And so what do you do with that? She was sorely missed. It was stunning to see the things that happened in her absence. Her little brother, Papa, ran away, and that set off a child protection investigation that ultimately resulted in the children being removed from the home in the beginning, just because the parents were accused of neglecting their children because they hadn't taken care of the conditions of their home, when in fact, this was a Section 8 home and the landlord had not fixed a bunch of things. And so many of these cases are about neglect and not abuse. And that's a really important thing to, to know the difference between, you know, abuse being the parent who wants to hurt their child, neglect being failure to provide. You know, she could not overcome the survivor's guilt of that. She felt that it's because of her that this happened and that this, this is the reason. And then I think on a more fundamental level, she also started to take issue with this notion of what success should look like. When we venerate the story of escaping, we forget the problems in those neighborhoods that 
really are the reason that anyone needs to escape in the begin to begin with. She would like Dasani would like to, to have it both ways. She'd like to be able to stay home. She'd like to stay closely uh, intertwined with her family, and at the same time, she'd like to find a way to thrive. So, Andre, let me pick up on that because the the ties of family for Dasani, which you portray so beautifully, um, she's on the phone to her mother, and you can feel the pull of her family, even though what she's being pulled back to seems, relative to what's happening at the Hershey School, so much less attractive. Can you just talk a little bit about, leaving aside the societal challenges and hurdles, just the the pull she feels to be a part of a family that you also beautifully demonstrate she needs to get away from to beat some of the challenges she faces? I mean, I think that's the central tension of Dasani's story is needing her family, wanting her family, and at the same time, trying to reach past the lot that they've been given and reconciling those two things. What I would say about family in this book is that it's the lifeblood. It's the the, the heartbeat of the book. We always talk about the cycle of poverty, right? Something that people can't break from, but we never talk about the cycle of power that is innate within a family like this that has had to survive generation after generation, things like child separation, things like uh, marriages falling apart or having to uh, raise your child on your own. And, And I think there's just a lot to be learned from this family story. A lot of the people that Dasani and her family encounter are not, they're not people of ill will. They're people of goodwill. They wish, they wish general good upon the family. And yet there's catastrophe that is visited upon the family. If you were magically in charge of of all of New York City or New York State's budget and all of its policies, what are two or three things that you could do that might have made life better for this family? Number one, just across America, we have a huge lack of affordable housing matched with wages that cannot keep up with the cost of living. And so we're seeing a version of this family's homelessness all around the country. But even in New York, her own teacher, who was a kind of heroine in this book, Faith Hester, wound up evicted because of her gentrifying neighborhood where she had been born Bed-Stuy. And she herself, working full-time, was one of the one-third of parents who are working in the shelter system, entered the shelter system and was homeless. So you see there's a real range. I think a family like Dasani's needs added support, something that um, I've seen Eric Adams talking about, supportive housing. It's expensive, but it's not as expensive as what happens when children are severed from their parents and have a greater likelihood of winding up as teen parents, dropping out of high school, not being able to participate in the labor market, having a greater chance of incarceration. One thing that really stunned me was something that a a caseworker on the child protection side of the story pointed out to me herself. When the children were removed, they were placed in a foster care system, these eight siblings that wound up spending on average $33,000 a month to foster them. If Linda pointed this out to me, Linda Lowe, if you just took a fraction of that and directed it towards keeping this family intact, that would have made such a huge difference. When families of means are in crisis, 
we offer them material supports. Like, you know, if a kid is sick, you come and you bring the mom a casserole or you help make phone calls. That's what they needed in their worst moments of crisis. They didn't need to be given the added pressure of suddenly going to parenting classes. And you're not in the space for therapy when you're in crisis. But when poor families come under the scrutiny of this system, the pressure mounts rather than is relieved. These kids went into this system of spending nearly half a million dollars a year just on this family. If you had just put someone in the home just to help get the lights turned back on, making phone calls, helping draw the bath. I do wonder about our choices. The federal government gives 10 times the amount of money to separating uh, families than to keeping them together. I want to know how Dasani is doing. And also, I would love for you to talk a little bit about your relationship with her and the family as this longtime immersive reporter. When I do this work, I often feel like I'm doing it without any kind of guides, that there's something you one ends up getting very wrapped up in people's issues and problems and lives because that's what it takes to do the work. And yet I sometimes feel like I'm not supposed to be completely honest about that because it's breaking with all of our sort of notions of journalists standing at a slight distance, that there's something um, wrong about becoming so tangled up in someone's life. And you did such a lovely job in your afterward of talking about all of that. It actually made me feel much better. <laughs> well, you do, and, uh, you do remarkable work. And so keep doing whatever you're doing. But this, there is no roadmap. This is the thing. We have <laughs> in the newsroom a set of protocols that um, are very important, right, To in terms of protecting the integrity of our work, that you you don't, quote unquote, become friends with your sources. This is deep immersion. It's like what ethnographers do um, when you spend a lot of time or even just magazine stories are a different kind of journalism. I think there's a difference between getting entangled practically speaking with the family and getting entangled emotionally. I don't think that there's a perfect answer for either of those two realities. But what I would say about the emotions is that keeping at a distance is going to be felt by the reader in a way that I don't think necessarily is helpful to the narrative. I, I think it's okay to have big feelings about what you're seeing as long as you can pull back in the editing process and make sure that you are considering other perspectives and you're trying for something that provides a sense of balance. I used to have this, I have my reporter hat on, this person has a subject hat on kind of binary view. And I've come to now see that actually the opposite is most important to work like this, to bringing it alive is just allowing myself to wear these two hats and to create space for them as a reporter and as a human being, I'm a human being. So and as long as I'm talking about it and I'm conversing with my subjects about it, I think it's something we're just always wrestling with. And if you feel too comfortable, if you feel like you've arrived at the answer, that's the danger. Thank you. As to your question about how Dasani is doing, her life continues to have big ups and big downs, just like in this book. But she did hit one major milestone recently, which is after becoming the first of the eight siblings to graduate from high school, she has started college at LaGuardia Community College, and she's majoring in business administration. She's back living with her mom and two of her siblings. And this is, to Dasani's mind, a perfectly good way of pursuing a better life, to do 
all things at once to try to reach for something more while keeping herself deeply rooted in her community, her culture, and her family. Andrea Elliott's book is Invisible Child. It's amazing, the story of Dasani Coates. Andrea, thanks for coming on the GabFest. Thank you so much for having me. Let's go to cocktail chatter. And I'm going to do something weird, which I haven't done in years. I'm going to take the first cocktail chatter because I have a very, I'm very excited about my cocktail chatter. And I just want to, I don't want listeners to have to wait. Go, go for uh, it. Yeah. Who needs to hear um, us It's first? super log rolly though. So, so it goes. <laughs> I want to talk about something that has brought me so much joy this week. And I guarantee will bring you joy and will also be the best gift you could possibly get anyone. As many of you know, I was for some years, the CEO of Atlas Obscura, which is this wonderful website and trip company. And also we created a magnificent book called Atlas Obscura, which was a guide to the hidden wonders of the world. It was a number one bestseller, deservedly so. It was a fantastic book. And while I was at Atlas Obscura, we started another project called Gastro Obscura, where we were collecting and cataloging the world's wondrous food, the most delightful and strange and amazing foods around the world and food cultures. And I'm so pleased that this week the Gastro Obscura book is out and it is incredible. It's just an incredible book. It's maybe the best coffee table book you'll ever get. If you liked the Atlas Obscura original book, which I know a lot of you did, this is even better. It's a trip around the world revealing extraordinary foods and there are more than a thousand entries like the chilean beer that's distilled or, or or made from fog or the town in china that makes these meatballs that are bounce or the other town in china that has figured out how to make its eggs have double yolks or the thousand year old persian ice houses or the pecan pie vending machine in texas it's just amazing every page is a delight and a joy if you're somebody who likes to eat and Face it, we're human. Who doesn't? Every page is just a wonder. So get this Gastro Obscura book for yourself. Get a copy for your aunt. It is, it's just a joyful, joyful thing. So can I say you sort of stole my chatter? I thought of a backup, but it is the most beautiful book. A whole bunch of them arrived at our house because my husband ordered them to give his gifts. And it just is fascinating, but also just like lovely to flip the pages. And totally something you could just like pass around and marvel at with other people. Thanks. It really is. What's your chatter, Emily? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. My chatter is so the dark side of that chatter. So I have been just really concerned about conditions in American jails and in a very urgent way, because I think COVID has produced this disastrous set of circumstances in which a lot of people who work in jails have called in sick. They don't want to work there. The conditions have gotten even worse. And there's a story this week in the New York Times about Rikers and just the lawlessness and breakdown there that's terrifying. I mean, it includes the deaths of several people. It's by my colleagues, Jan Ransom, Jonah Bromwich, and Rebecca Davis O'Brien. And I had to force myself, honestly, to read it because it's so upsetting to think about the conditions inside, you know, these are real people, many of them not convicted of crime, waiting for trial. And, you know, they're just being asked, it's it's just really unsafe. And then this morning, uh, there are reports in Philadelphia of a riot breaking out in the main jail in Philadelphia and, you know, riot police having to be called in. There were 80, more than 80 people broke out of their cells in the night. It also just sounds really scary. And again, lawless. Um Wait, Emily, sorry, just on the Rikers point, what is it that, what is making it lawless? 
Why? I mean, now? they've Is had so many prison guards call in sick and just not show up for work that it's become incredibly understaffed. And then when you have that kind of situation, things start to fall apart. And it the uh, you know it's really easy for people to start exploiting weaknesses in the system. Um, I think that's really a lot of it. And then I think also because there's been this campaign to close Rikers and promises to close it, the idea of, oh, well, in the meantime, we also need to continue to make sure this place operates safely has kind of broken down. I mean, there have been problems and violence and like terror at Rikers for a long time. So there's a way in which this is kind of horribly episodic too. It's depressing. John Dickerson, what's your chatter? My chatter is two things. One, I'm involved with, uh, I'm on the board of something called Covenant House, which helps teenage homeless youth try to overcome homelessness. And there is a fundraiser every year where for one night we sleep out as a way of raising awareness and money. That has started again. Go to the pinned tweet in my uh, Twitter profile to donate if you are so moved to support the cause and the kids who really blossom after they're um, in touch with the unconditional love of the amazing people that work at Covenant House. The second thing is uh, a, a Twitter list from somebody whose handle is Gerwinder, G-U-R-W-I-N-D-E-R. It is 40 concepts in the world that include things like Benford's Law, which is something you'll have to look up, and the, the toxoplasma of rage. But one of my favorites was Brandolini's Law, which is the BS asymmetry principle, which is to say that it takes a lot more energy to refute BS than to produce it. Hence, the world is full of unrefuted BS. It is a great list of these 40 different phenomena in life that you can entertain yourself with and entertain your friends. Listeners, you tweet chatter to us at, at @slategabfest. Thank you for doing that. Please keep it coming. Something that has brought you joy or confusion or curiosity or or unhappiness or uh, whatever this week. And this week's listener chatter comes from Nettie Hendricks. So let's hear from Nettie. Hi, Gabfest. Here's my chatter. Joseph Malov, a popular English professor at the University of Texas, mentioned once in a class that he had been born in Latvia and his family had had a traveling band back in Europe. I had always wondered about this. Turned out that he later made a documentary about how he and his brothers and sisters, 13 in all, dropped out of school and toured Europe without their father on the eve of World War II to make enough money for passage to the U.S. It's a remarkable story full of history and drama. The eldest brother kept the bus in repair, booked the concerts, and drove the bus full of his younger siblings on the Autobahn in the midst of a column of Nazi tanks. He wrote, It felt as if all the cannon in the world were pointing at us. He was only 24. They all went on to have illustrious careers in the U.S., mostly in academia. The documentary is available on YouTube under the Fettler Family Band, F-E-T-L-E-R. That is our show for today. The Gabfest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. You know, this team, the five of us have been doing this show. Like, it's been a long run, all of us. And may it continue. May it, long may it continue. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's just, I was just thinking, like, I, it's just always the same names. Gabriel Roth is editorial director of Slate Audio. June Thomas Maybe is Maybe should change ours plots. If anyone's going to change their name, it would be you. Sorry, I just stepped on your credit. It's okay. I should. I definitely, plots is such a terrible name. 
Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Please follow us on Twitter at SlateGabFest and tweet chatter to us there. And also send us conundrums by going to slate.com slash conundrum. For Emily Bazelon and John Dockerson, I'm changing John's name. I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? Good. Uh, fine. That's good. Yeah, I wasn't really interested. Anyway, I was <laughs> on vacation. Don't admit that. All these weeks you've been I asking them kidding. how they are. I oh my God, kidding. you gave I'm yourself away. I'm super interested. Uh, there were so many answering at once. I was, I was on vacation last week, and part of my vacation, I was at Venice Beach one day, um, and there were a whole bunch of young people just doing wonderful things. There was the, Muscle Beach was not happening, so there weren't people lifting, which would have been nice. But there was this, this skateboarding venue where lots of people were just kind of skating, skating, skating. And you got the sense, looking at them, that these were people who probably spent most of their lives skating and then probably had some kind of job on the side, quiet job on the side, to make money so that they could just go and skate on Venice Beach day after day, which seemed like, you know, if you were a person who liked to skateboard, what a nice way to live. Or maybe not. Maybe it wouldn't. Maybe it wouldn't be a ni- nice way to live. But the, that prompted this this uh, slate plus question, which is Emily and John and David. If you were going to spend your days in some kind of non work culture, living freely, you know, and maybe you know, living living more modestly than you live, but but in order that you can indulge yourself in some activity that you could just do joyfully all the time, what would it be? Would you be, you know, sailing all day or surfing? What would it be, Emily? I would not pick a water activity. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> I'm with you. Yeah, totally. Go I ahead. would. Well, I would like to be near a lake. I would like to be somewhere in the woods. I mean, I. So what I'm gonna say might be really idealized because it would probably be more work than I would in the end want to do. But I really like the idea of finally learning how to garden in some real way, like just having a kind of simpler life where I'm, you know, in some idealized spot in like Vermont or Montana or New Mexico, doesn't really matter, where you're more out in the middle of nowhere. I would read a ton. I would just like read a lot of fiction, never, ever go on social media and knit and grow food and cook. So that would be, so those, those it implies that you're, relatively solitary or that it's not it's not that you're in a rich community that the community part of it is not important in that well i wouldn't want to be all by myself i would definitely want to bring my husband and have my children visit a lot and i would want actually to be in a community of friends i mean ideally like this is my idea i'm it's not going to happen but i would like to retire with like 30 people i love and have communal meals every night and just spend a lot of time like in that community kind of making it work call me Call me. Let's do All it. All right, good. You're in. I'm glad to hear it. John has to think about it a little bit. Well, well as you know, uh, I enjoy being alone. Um, but I think that what you sketched out, Emily, is 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 perfect. I think um, lake, farm area, um, at days spent uh, in the company of trees and vegetables and flowers. And then I had this experience the other day while I was finally finishing or on my way to finishing The Way We Live Now by Anthony Trollope, oh, um, where I just oh, sort of... Oh, such you. a good book. Oh, we it's amazing. Book. And of course, it's also, you read almost every other page, you think, he foretold so much yes. that has come yeah, to pass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Completely. Um, but as I'm reading, I had this moment where I thought, 
what have we need of the cares of the world when there is Trollope to read? It was just sort of like, this is all you need. And then the other day I thought, well, yes, that plus British British procedurals uh, like McDonald and Dodds or Vera, which I've just discovered, which is a fantastic British procedurals. And Anne made the point the other day, which is if you add up all the people killed in British procedurals, there would be no one yet left alive in the countryside of England or outside of London, really, because they've all been killed. And all in really super mysterious ways with lots of flammable liquid nearby and um, like World War II weaponry that happens to go off at the right way. But anyway, you would want to get the right mix of solitude and communal because I think, Emily, the flaw in the 30 people is you don't want the obligation to go have dinner with them. You want to be able to just hang when you when you can hang. Um that, this is the difference between you and me. So maybe I would be sufficient traveling distance that, that I wouldn't be a constant participant in the 30-person dinner. You're not fucking invited. Yes. John's not even invited. And no, can come. No, he's invited. Do you like the way I which I invited myself to something? <laughs> he's allowed which to dip in to and invited? out. He has like the hermit enclave in the communal property. Um, Emily, we totally should do this, by the way. I'm, oh, my God. I'm, I'm so excited that you're interested I'm in this. I'm so down. I'm a million percent down. Well, let's we'll talk. take it offline. So I, I played golf also on vacation, and I did have a thought, which I would, if I could play golf all day, every day, I would be happy, even though I'm an atrocious golfer. And I, So here's the thing, though. If you bring golf into the world we were just describing, it's like a different world, I think. It, I mean, yep. I guess you could just live near like yeah. a, you know, it's, municipal golf course, uh, but it, it suggests something much more like high end and country. Yeah, club. yeah. No, no. Then I was, but what I was going to say is actually, I can't stand the people who play golf. <laughs> I can't stand hanging around other golfers. So <laughs> it's, it would, <laughs> it's actually not going to be the one. I, I think. Wait, you don't want your 30 person dinner to be populated by people constantly telling you their stories about golf? You yeah. want to deny yourself that rich tapestry of yeah. the human experience? Unfortunately, what you realize is when you spend any time at a fancy golf place, as I was, I was at a very fancy golf place, is that they're all, they're all like politically people I just don't want to deal with. You, Wait a minute! You just had this heartfelt speech about how we had to be around people I we know. disagreed with I, and like hearts and true. minds. It's true, and I will <laughs> like if it's it's what it takes. If it's for me to play the PGA West Course Stadium and Mountain Course day after day in order to cr- increase comedy across party lines, I will do it. Gabfest fans, that was just a teaser. To hear the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, go to slate.com/gabfestplus to become a Slate Plus member today. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice. 
all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.